Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here's and a this hush week's falls message. over the crowd. Hi guys. Happy Sunday. So uh, turns out Adam Russell is in uh, Pennsylvania somewhere, I think Eastern PA, uh, having some cheesesteak, having some fun. And uh, my name's Ray, and uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll be your server today. Um, we're, I'm really excited to be able to partner with Adam in uh, helping kick off a new uh, series that we're going to be doing for either three or four weeks uh, about the very broad topic of worship. Yeah, like, you know, pick a topic and narrow it. No, not us. Um, because if we wanted to talk about worship, we could talk about that from now till Christmas and still have more to go. But we're going to spend three or four weeks on it. And uh, I was told uh, to bring out a really broad brush and to paint in big, bold outlines today. So Jesus, would you help me to paint in big, bold outlines there? That's our prayer. Um, and uh, so here we go. Uh, I want to share today with you uh, two passages of Scripture one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. And then we're going to unpack just some of of the the most basic things about worship. Let me tell you the place of worship here at the Vineyard. The Vineyard is part of a larger movement, uh, Vineyard Churches USA, and indeed even internationally. Uh, There's like 3,000 churches around the world. And ever since a pill-popping, alcohol-guzzling, trombone-playing, rock-and-roll, record-producing guy named John Wimber uh, got right with Jesus and moved from Las Vegas to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, Wimber was the founder of the Vineyard Movement. Music and worship and praise has always been a fundamental part of who we are whenever Vineyard people gather. Well, it turns out it's bigger than the Vineyard Movement. God's people have been worshiping, who knew, for like three or four millennia, uh, thousands of years, right? Uh, So um, worship is part and parcel of interacting with the creator of the universe. Worship is part and parcel of being a disciple. And uh, those are the things that, uh, that I want to talk about today. It's the place of worship in our walk as disciples and the uh, place of uh, worship in, um, in just how God has always dealt with his people. So our first passage of scripture is quasi-famous if you are church broken. It's from Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. Um, these passages are so famous that uh, uh, churchgoers like evangelicals even give this a name, the the Great Commission, but who knew you could even learn from uh, very familiar passages. So this is the very end of Matthew's gospel. Last week, we celebrated the uh, death and most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. He he rose on Easter Sunday. You'd heard that, right? You know, news news flash. Uh, Do you know back then in the first century what Jesus was doing a week after Easter Sunday? And the answer was he was still being resurrected. He was still alive. He was still out and about, right? And uh, here we are in 2018, and I'm going to give you a newsflash. Jesus is still resurrected 2018 years later. But um, one of the things Jesus did is his first appearances were in the city of Jerusalem, but he wasn't from Jerusalem, and neither were any of his followers. 
So after he had appeared and showed the many convincing proofs that he was alive, he said, hey, let's go back to Galilee. Why don't you meet me there? And that's where this passage, the final words of Matthew's gospel pick up. Uh, Chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, which is always a good idea to go where Jesus suggests, right? Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. And Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Be sure of this. He's with us right now. Be sure of this. He's always with us, not just on Sunday mornings. And um, uh, I chose verses 16 and 17, along with the more famous verses that you might be familiar with, because of the prominent place of worship in this thing that we call the Great Commission. And um, so I want to talk about the links between worship and discipleship. And the very first thing to notice is that they go to where Jesus has told them to go, this mountain in Galilee. And then it says, and he met them there and they worshiped him. So if you're the note-taking kind or you want to make a mental note, mark this down. And it's this, that worship always comes before mission. Always. Before we attempt to do anything that Jesus asks us to do, worship precedes mission right? He's about to deliver these famous words, you know, go into all the the earth, make disciples of all people groups, all ethnicities, of all nations. But first, he meets with them on their home turf and receives their worship, okay? Um, Worship first is the difference between following Jesus or just a program of good works. This is really important. Now, I'm in favor of good works, Whatever you're doing that's good, please keep doing it. But worship is the distinguishing mark of the followers of Jesus. Otherwise, it's just a program of social works. And and I'm in favor of social works. Uh, uh, Worship is the distinguishing mark of the followers of Jesus that puts the stamp on everything that we do to say, and whatever that is, uh, whether you are, you know, a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, a bricklayer, a a stonemason, or a construction worker, everything I do is flowing out of my worship for God. Worship always precedes mission. Worship is what distinguishes our mission from the rest of the world because there are many good things being done by people who have good hearts toward their fellow man or fellow woman, right? Uh, Some people, though, just prefer doing things to worship. But worship is the first thing that we do. Maybe you're an action-oriented person, like, why are we all sitting around here singing songs when we ought to be out there, you know, like loving the people doing this, doing that? Well, we ought to be out there doing all of those things. But the first thing we do is we worship. And in fact, even the way that uh, the church is structured is that early in the morning, well, it's the 11 o'clock service, early in the morning on the first day of the week, we worship Jesus. 
There's a reason that, that followers of Jesus meet on the first day of the week instead of the seventh day of the week, the way Jewish followers of uh, the law of Moses do. And it is that we're resetting the mechanism. As it were, we're hitting control, alt, delete, and making sure that we ourselves are centered in the most important things in our lives. In fact, worship should infuse everything we do from homemaker to house builder, everything that we do should be infused with worship. And I tried to use my imagination a little bit about the setting that we get there in verse 16, where it says, Jesus tells them to go to Galilee. And as I've mentioned, they weren't from Jerusalem. If you look at a map of Israel, they were kind of up and to the right, the hills of Galilee. That's true of Jesus and it's true of all of his disciples. So what Jesus was doing was in a way resetting the mechanism. He said, let's all go home. But now, after the resurrection, no, not after the resurrection, while he is still resurrected, home looks completely new because death has been defeated. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Home looks like a different place. So you may think that as you begin your walk with Jesus, that the first thing you have to do is get out of Dodge. Well, I have good news for you today. He makes all things new, even the settings with which we are familiar. And this is part of why we worship on a Sunday morning, is so that when we go out of the doors, is that we can see this community, this little one-horse town, this little Mayberry RFD, we can see it with new eyes, right? In fact, worship is the transition from just knowing interesting ideas about Jesus. Worship is the transition into a life of formation, of transformation. So if we think that our purpose as Christians is just to learn all that we can about Jesus, well, I'm in favor of learning all that we can about Jesus. But no, the difference between learning a set of ideas and worshiping God is to experience a transformation in us. We not only want to know new facts, we want to be changed into the image of our Lord, okay? So imagine those 11 men going back home, gathered on a hillside in Jerusalem. Use your imagination. All of these guys, 11 individuals, focused on the person of Jesus who's physically right in front of them. Adam worked really hard last week to remind us that this was a physical resurrection, that he was bodily there. And these 11 men are bowing down to him. They're worshiping him. And it's in that moment that 11 isolated individuals, as they begin to focus on the person of Jesus, make this transformation from 11 individual lives into one body, the church. This is the point at which as they focus on someone other than themselves who has defeated death and it supernaturally lives forever, that they're going through that transformation. These 11 people, okay? Um, worship is like that. It's an exit from a small and ordinary place into the great wide world that God has created. It's an exit from a narrow, confining, familiar place into stunning, breathtaking panorama of the God who makes all things new. Worship is, is like a birth canal. 
It's we go through the narrow place and through worship, we come into a wide place where we see things differently and it's the God who makes all things new. Worship is a birth into a new circle of people that maybe we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. Now I'm gonna try really hard not to look at like anybody in the face, but I'll just say this, on Sunday mornings, this room is filled with people that I wouldn't normally hang out with. I'm not singling anyone out. This is, this is part of why God's people gather to worship. And it is namely this, that we gather with people that we might not ordinarily gather with. I mean, if I had my choice, I'd wanna be in Los Angeles with all the movie stars and all the beautiful people because obviously I would fit right in, right? I would want to be with the cool kids wearing the best clothes, eating the trendiest foods and always Instagramming the selfies about me. That's what I'd want to do. But when we gather for worship, what we're doing is we're gathering together with God's people and we're moving on this, this transition from being isolated individuals into being the assembled people of God. That's what worship is. So it's, it's not only this, this birth type experience, but worship is a new life and it's a new identity through a common focus and a common heart a new identity through a common life and a common focus on the heart of Jesus. Worship is to see your home country in an entirely new light. Worship is the beginning, as you can tell, by where this is placed in the gospel narrative. Worship is at the very beginning of the call to become a disciple and to make disciples. We don't embark on our journey as followers of Jesus apart from worship, right? So they say repetition is the mother of learning. I've probably given you that like six times now. This is the beginning of discipleship. But then I love just the very next words because they're actually like a comfort to a loser like me. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Wait, some doubted? So what you got is 11 guys who hung out with Jesus every day for three years. You got 11 guys who watched Jesus be dead. Well, there's great grammar. I speak for a living. They watched Jesus be dead. They put him in the tomb. And then on the very Sunday, just a week before Easter Sunday, they see this resurrected person and they're worshiping him there, just isolated on the mountain. But some doubted, what a bunch of losers right? And that gives me comfort because that means I could have been in that group. Now, we don't need a show of hands. In fact, I'll go ahead and do the show of hands. It's me, all right? Have you ever been a part of any kind of expression of worship and people all around you are singing their hearts out, they're lifting their hands. I saw a little girl over here dancing her heart out. I'm loving all of these expressions. But meanwhile, I'm like, you know, I'm not even sure I buy all of this. I mean, I've been a pastor. Heck, I teach theology. Uh, you know, who knows? But I'm not actually sure that I'm down for all of this. Have you ever had that experience like right in the middle of worship? You're not even sure what's real or what's not. Take heart. You are part of the 11 original disciples. Or, or maybe it's not like a theological, maybe it's not a thought kind of doubt. Maybe it's like, okay, I came on Sunday morning but man, you should have seen the week that I had last week. 
Everything was sucky. Nothing worked right. Uh, my best friend stabbed me in the back. Uh, uh, nobody liked my Instagram. I mean, it was just a terrible sort of day and week. And now here I am worshiping and I'm going, how come nothing ever works out for me? I've had those thoughts while I'm worshiping, right? And yet, our doubts do not isolate us or preclude us from being able to worship the risen Lord. You know, it depends really on your translation. You could pick a different translation and it would say this. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, comma. And then Jesus said, all you doubters, get over on this side. And all you people who really believe, get over on this side. No, wait, it doesn't say that in any translation. Jesus must have known their hearts just as he knows my heart. But he didn't say, oh, well, I don't want any of your worship unless you are 100% in the club. No, he received their worship. He looked forward to being with them in Galilee. And just as importantly, their doubts in the middle of worship did not preclude them from the mission that he gave them. So do you think like, I have to be the one who's getting 100 on the exam plus the four points extra credit. Otherwise, I can't do the mission of Jesus. Well, these guys in the physical presence of Jesus worshiped, and notice it's a plural. It's, it's not just a reference to that guy doubting Thomas. It's a plural, some doubted. There were people that were having those head games go on. So can I welcome you to the fellowship of people that play head games while they worship? It's okay. It's part of it. And in fact, the first place of cleansing for the head games that we feel is the place of worship. That's why we put praise and worship and adoration. And even as Matt Nall said, even times of just silence and reflection. Don't, I appreciated it so much today that the band kind of backed off of the singing and the lyrics so that we could just let our hearts or our minds go wherever it was that the Holy Spirit wanted to let, let us go. And so, you know, so Matt said, it's like Selah. It's like, just chill for a minute and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. This is the call of every disciple. Worship precedes mission and doubt does not make our worship somehow invalid before God. And our doubt does not keep Jesus from calling us and sending us out into the world, right? So there we go. There's a New Testament example of worship under the most ideal conditions. And the amazing thing is, is that I know I would fit there. I could be there. On my best day, I'd be like, you know, front and center disciple. And on my worst day, I'd be like, you know, the sulky, moody, you know, grumbly disciple. But I wouldn't be excluded no matter what. And I, I take comfort in that. And I hope you do too. That's Matthew. But it turns out there's not only a New Testament. Who knew? There's also an Old Testament. And so the second passage that I want to share with you is from Psalm 100. Heck, it's not from Psalm 100. It is Psalm 100. It's the whole thing. Psalm 100 is only five verses long. This is the whole thing. So you want to impress your friends? You can say, well, in church today, I read an entire chapter out of the Bible. And they'll go, well, aren't you special, right? And what a wonderful chapter it is. Um, you know, Old Testament means before Jesus, right? 
So we're going to go back 1,000 years. No, that's not true. We're going to go back 2,000 years. No, wait, there's more. We're going to go back 3,000 years to the worship traditions of God's people. I mean, that's older than my grandma, 3,000 years, right? These are words that have been uttered, spoken, sung, preserved for us, and are a part of our experience. Now, I date to a very strange era called the 1960s and the 1970s. We used to sing this song like straight out of the scripture as one of our worship songs, but I'm not gonna sing it for you today because you'd go, man, that's lame. But let's read the words. Can we read the words? So shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us, we are his we are his people, the sheep of his pastor. Enter pasture, not pastor. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. That is Psalm 100. As I intone those words in my overly dramatic voice. And as they enter into your ears, you're being connected with worship traditions three millennia old, which coincidentally is about how long it'll take me to work my way through Psalm 100. So make yourself comfortable. We got three millennia's worth of work to do. Let's look at Psalm 100, can we? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you for the affirmation. I love this. Let's, uh, by the way, what a wonderful outline. It's five verses long, five points. Here we go. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Wait, what? Shouting? Yes, shouting. Did you know that in the book of the Psalms, this collection of 150 worship songs, that shouting outnumbers silence 12 to one? 12 to one. Now, there is a place for silence and meditation and om and all of that. There's places to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. But in the book of Psalms, shout happens 12 times more than silence does. Apparently, God likes it rowdy. Is that okay? You know, if you think that heaven is going to be just gentle little background music like what you hear on an elevator in Louisville, boy, have I got news for you. It's trumpets, it's cymbals, it's clashing. It's a cacophony of voices and people and ethnicities and languages and all sorts of things going on. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Now, shout joyfully. We're instructed how we should shout. And that is with joy. And in fact, a joyful spirit is in keeping with a joyful God. Can you make a note of that? That a joyful spirit is in keeping with a joyful God. Do you know that in another setting, in one of the teachings of Jesus, one of the parables, that's actually about using our gifts and our talents well, when the master wanted to reward those people who had been faithful, he says, enter into the joy of your master. There is a place that God has prepared for us that is filled with joy. And that place is not always and only in the sweet by and by. That place could be whenever and wherever God's people gather. That place could be here. 
that place could be now and you could smile. It would be all right. In fact, joy is one third of God's kingdom. He says authoritatively. How did you come up with that? One third of God. Yeah, right. The apostle Paul describes the kingdom of God as right relationships, peace, and joy. That's the entire description, Romans 14, 17. Therefore, he said, therefore, joy is one third of God's kingdom. And here we are in Psalm 100 being enjoined to be rowdy, to shout, and to do so joyfully because that is a kingdom expression. In fact, joy is, is like, it's like a great dance. Uh, you know, why is it that it's just the children that dance in the aisles? And by the way, parents, if your kids get out during the music and dance and jump up and down and even run, I say, good for them. The truth is, is that we ought to be dancing more. It, joy, you know, is, is this physical, bodily expression. Have you ever met a, a, a joyful person that you couldn't tell it on the outside? Have you ever met someone who was really, I'm really joyful, honestly. No, on the inside, I'm, I'm quite happy. <laughs> Poppycock, right? <laughs> By gum, if you're joyful, people are gonna know it. You're gonna, did you ever walk into a room where people are laughing and like you start laughing just because they're laughing and you don't even know what they're laughing about? That's joy. And it is part and parcel of God's kingdom. And I'm not talking about like fake it till you make it, like, oh, come through the doors at the vineyard and put on a happy face. I'm talking about entering into a realm where the foundation is always joy. So we've had a sucky week. So I didn't get 100 likes on my Instagram. So I got fired from my job. So I wrecked the car. So my wife found out that I'm spending all of my money on bubble gum. All of those things, right? You know what? We can still enter in to joy when we assemble with God's people. Shout, how? Joyfully unto God, who? All the earth. Now, Adam worked really hard last week to remind us how inclusive the gospel is. It's all the earth. Can I, can I share with you like my weird and kind of warped imagination? I imagine that there'll be, can I do that? Good, okay, I imagine that someday in the eschaton, when everybody is assembled, every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and together we are all focused on Jesus, I like to imagine that on my right, there will be a peasant farmer from France in like the eighth century. And he or she will be singing before God in, I don't know, Frankish or Norman or French or some language I don't know. And, you know, he or she will still have like the dirt of the earth underneath their fingernails. And I won't know what they're saying, but they're just going to be before God. And then on my left is going to be somebody from the first century, from Ethiopia. Do you know that the gospel went to Africa first? That, that, that in Acts chapter eight, it's shared with a court official from Ethiopia. And so like, there's gonna be somebody there who's gonna be speaking in a language I sure as heck don't know. And they're gonna be praising God and I'm gonna be singing in my you know, middle class white, you know, fancy language like our God is an awesome God. <laughs> and they're gonna be going nuts over here and they're gonna be going nuts over here. I like to imagine how inclusive the gospel is. Not just every tribe and every tongue, and every nation, but every century. And wait, it's even more inclusive than that. 
Because what it says is, shout with joy unto the Lord all the earth, not just all the peoples of the earth. I like to imagine that the earth itself will be rejoicing and worshiping God. And I think there's actually some reason to think this because on that week before Easter at Palm Sunday, people are screaming their heads off as Jesus is coming in, Hosanna, save us now. And they say, hey, Rabbi, tell your people to cool it. And Jesus says, no, because if they will be quiet, what will happen? The rocks and the stones themselves will cry out. You see, this is an invitation for all that has been created to worship its creator. I believe there are songs yet to be sung that are gonna come forth from the physical created universe. And I believe that we're going to be a part of that. And furthermore, I don't put it all in the future tense. I say that sometimes when the God's people assemble or gather, that we're getting the foretaste of it right now. So that person behind you or to the left who doesn't sing so well, chalk it up to shouting joyfully. <laughs> And ask yourself, is he or she part of all of the earth? Answer, check, yes. And just receive it. Just go with it. Besides, it might have been me that was next to you, singing off key, way too loud, clapping way too much. And yes, I've been known to shout in church. Do you remember Adam used to do that? I'm going to have to ask him when he gets back. He used to say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to just shout. And then he'd go, one, two, three. Yeah, well, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to ask him to do that when he gets back, okay? All right. That's verse one. Told you it was going to take a while. All right, so how about this? Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with singing. What? Singing? Yeah. Singing. It turns out that singing is deeply woven into the human psyche. Mothers can tell you this. Their babies probably sang before they spoke. Their babies would hear the rhythms and the sounds and the noises around them. And before their babies could articulate words, they were already beginning to intone melodies. Singing is, we're, we're made to sing. It's part and parcel of who we are. And it doesn't matter if we sing well or sing bad. Uh, my wife's here. She's right over there. Hi, sweetie. So I'm not going to name any names, but when she was a single woman, this other person who was a worship leader, not this church, a worship leader in another church, said something about the fact that my wife couldn't sing well. And you know what it did? It kind of shut her down. Am I, is that correct? The truth is my wife has a beautiful voice and I love to hear her sing. But because one person was like all judgy, isn't that the way Christians are? All judgy <laughs> and saying, well, you can't sing so well. The truth is, is that all of us should worship the Lord with gladness, and we should come before him with, with joyful songs. That's the only requirement for singing, is that it would be joy-infused. Old Testament scholar uh, Walter Brueggemann says, some, says this about singing, and I really, really liked it. He said, to sing in this way is to abandon our self-groundedness and to be grounded in someone else. Rather than worrying about whether this came out all right, rather than being worried about whether I'm squeaking, you know, like these poor teenagers, their voices are changing and, you know, you don't know what's going to come out. Rather than being self-grounded, singing in this way calls us to give up our self-groundedness and to be grounded in something else. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. 
Now, you know I'm old, right? I'm a baby boomer. Would you permit me, please? A get off my lawn kind of moment? Aren't you sweet, Amy? Thank you. I get to do whatever I want, right? All right? So here's what I want to say in my baby boomer sort of way. I wrote it down. It's not enough to hear the music. We must sing the music. Can I say that again? It's not enough to hear the music. We must sing the music. So this idea that we come to church, we grab a cup of joe, and we just kind of, hey, they're really cooking. And, you know, well, the congregation sounds pretty good today. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, there's an awesome concert before that guy Adam talks. No, 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 no. It's not enough to hear the music. We must be the singers of the song. We are the singers of the song, to quote Willy Wonka. We are the ones who enter into this gladness. We are called to that. In fact, there is something that's really healthy about my ears hearing my voice, praise my God. We're called to enter into the song. The truth is the song has always been going on from before creation until even this day, but it's not enough to hear the music. We're called to sing the music. Okay, enough of the rant, okay? Our well-being depends on our ability to join into the song. Verse three, acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us, we are his. Uh, Other translations say it like this. Know that the Lord is God. He made us and not we ourselves. Wow. Just take verse three, put it on something and put it up on your mirror because this is the beginning of mental health right here. He's God and I'm not. He's the creator Lord, and I am not the center of the universe. Part of what worship does is it resets the mechanism, and it reminds us exactly like what the psalm says, is that he's the maker, and we are the made. Does that make sense? This is actually what we do when we worship on the morning of the first day of the week, gathered together it might be the sanest thing we do all week. We might do smart things later. We might do productive things later. We might do evil later. But if we enter into the joyful shouting song that has been going on for millennia, it might be the most sane thing we've done. And I want to be a guy who is sane at least once a week. Don't you? Yeah, at least once a week. I want to be like grounded in something that is incontrovertibly true and right and good. And that's this, right? Know that the Lord is God. He made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I love this because grammar nerd, it's the first person plural. We are his people, not just I am his person. You know, narcissist much? I'm his person. No, we gathered together are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Gathering together is part of our identity as followers of Jesus. It is what followers of Jesus do. We are called to assemble together. It might only be two or three, or it might be, you know, like a room like this with a couple of hundred, or it could be in like a really, really big setting 
But we are called faithfully, regularly, and in a corporate identity where we are known and we can know each other to gather together. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So this is worth noting too. We are not only his, we are us, right? So you tearjerker fans, you know the TV show, This Is Us. You got fans of that? Should we all just weep a little bit together right now, right? Well, guess what? Can I tell you this? We're not nearly as good looking or witty. We don't have quite the script writers or the great uh, cinematographers, but this is us. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. And as compelling as those stories are, ooh, you know, right in the old core zone, our stories are just as compelling. This is us. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. And, you know, it's kind of an, well, I think it's interesting. I hope you do too. It's kind of an interesting observation. Sheep graze individually, but they are gathered in a flock. So what we eat and how we eat and how we gain our sustenance in God really is individual, but we still do it gathered together, safely, under the protection of a wise shepherd, and, and, and that's part of it. When the sheep wanders off to eat alone, it's when the sheep becomes the meal, right? We are his people. It's part of our identity. Verse four, man, I kept the 9 a.m. people here forever. You guys are gonna get out. You're gonna beat all the Presbyterians to the restaurant. It's gonna be great, okay? Here we go. Verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Well, like, that is like right out of my 60s and 70s background. I could start singing, and I'm sure some of you else could as well. Some of you else. Yeah, I do talk for a living, don't I? All right? So, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Apparently, there is a protocol for approaching the creator of the universe. Who knew? If you were to go to London town and to see the queen... Do you know that before you saw the queen, there would be a protocol officer who would say, please do not touch her majesty. Please do not put your arm around and say, oh, your majesty, I'm a hugger. Come here, let's hug it out. If her majesty extends her hand, you may take her hand. The protocol officer would tell you exactly what was required to come before royalty. And it turns out that Psalm 100, verse 4, there's a protocol officer, but just doesn't have a British accent. How do we come before the royal creator of the universe? Well, gosh, here's how we do it. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Yes, that's what we do, right? There's a protocol. Well, I like the way that Eugene Peterson uh, offers this in his paraphrase where he says, uh, he says, heaven has a password, thank you. You want to get in? You want to get in on heaven coming to earth right now? The ticket in the door where you can experience the inbreaking of the heavens even now, it starts with the words, thank you. We enter 
the outer courts. Now, quick little 10-second history lesson. This would have been at a time when there was a magnificent temple that took up more than 25% of the entire city of Jerusalem. And the outer courts where the walls were, there would only be a few places, these gates to go through the walls. And they're saying that as you step over the threshold and into the courtyard, stepping over the threshold from the outside world into God's world, how do you do that? You do that by saying thank you. If you want to come into God's presence, yeah, it's like I came here today to say this. If you want to enter into and experience God's presence, you do so by saying thank you. Enter into his courts with, oh, what's it, sorry. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. So Peterson says, yeah, like thank you is a password. I kind of like this better. Um, it would be like you see a shaft of sunlight, okay? Here's what giving thanks, what saying thank, thank you does, is rather than just seeing the shaft of light, it's like you get into the light and you can see all the way up to the sun. That's what thankfulness does, is it always reconnects you with the source of light and life and energy and peace. Thank you always reconnects you with the source of life. Okay, praise is, uh, and enter into his courts with praise. Praise is the, 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 so first we say thank you. Praise is the rational response of a human mind to its creator. And I know, I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, really, is God so much of a narcissist? Is God so insecure that he requires that we praise him? Have, have you ever thought that? I mean, I have. Here's where I found some help. C.S. Lewis says, is God so great a narcissist that he requires his creatures to praise him? And then C.S. Lewis says this. He says, no, the tendency to praise is hardwired into any of us. Whenever we find something that is amazing, we want to tell people about it and we want to praise it, right? So the first time you saw This Is Us, you probably saw somebody the next day at work and said, you have got to see this new show. It's absolutely amazing. What did you do? You took an experience that you had and you quite naturally praised that experience to another person. The truth is, is that we are made to praise about something else to one another. So like I'm uh, strung out on Twitter, right? And so my son puts up on Twitter a video this week of a goal that Ronaldo made, uh, you know, in the soccer game. So nerd alert, I'm going to give you a soccer example. And, and you, did anybody see the video this week? The goal that Ronaldo made? One. All right, fellow nerds, unite. It's amazing. The ball comes sailing in like, and you know, it's like six foot high in the air. And he jumps up backwards, puts his feet over his head like he's pedaling an upside down bicycle and kicks the ball into the back of the net. And the goalkeeper takes one step and just watches it go in. And then when I watched it a second time, because it was so amazing, the guy that was defending Ronaldo just went, <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to do, right? Well, this thing gets shared like 86 gazillion times over the internet. Did, it, did I score the goal? No, no, I did not. But it was so excellent that it was made to be shared because we appreciate things like that. Or another example, since we're on the sports thing, this is the week of the Masters. Okay, surely there are more golf fans than there are soccer fans. Golf fans, right? Well, no, we're still at one, it's you and me, okay? 
So Jack Nicholas is at the Masters, and he's like 105 years old, but he's won like seven, <laughs> seven or eight Masters tournaments. They give him these really ugly green jackets. But on Wednesday is the day where it's a practice round, and the tradition at the Masters is to let your caddy take a shot on a par three. Jack Nicholas's caddy is his grandson, who's like 16 or 17 years old. And the kid on the par three winds up, hits the ball, and it's a hole in one. And it's Jack Nicholas's grandson. And you see Nicholas like hugging his grandson. And it's like, this is us. Like the tears are just flowing. It's amazing. And then he posts on Twitter later, no disrespect to like the six times that I've won the Masters, but watching my grandson get his first hole in one is like the greatest experience I've had in golf. Yeah, it's A, that's sweet. But B, here's my point. Healthy people praise things that are good. And the reason that the scripture tells us to enter his gates with thanksgiving and go into his courts with praise is not that because he has need, but we have need to be able to recognize goodness and to speak about goodness to one another. Praise is a sign of mental health. He's God, we're not. We see and recognize what's good and we praise it. That is a wonderful thing, at least I think so. In fact, the discipline of giving thanks and praise is actually what trains us to worship constantly. Can I say that again? This is how you know that a speaker thinks it's important because he says it again. The discipline of giving thanks and praise is what trains us to worship constantly. Do you wanna lead a life where like worship is just part of our breathing? Well, then we need to train ourselves to give thanks and to praise anything that is good. I have three children. Whenever any of my children say something is good or wonderful, I want to enter in with them. I want to bond with them. I want to see the world through their eyes. And I really want to know things that are good that I might miss. That's the way it is with the people of God. Yeah? Okay. So we're almost there. Verse 5. Let's just see what time it is. Oh, wait, I got a bunch of tweets. No, that's not true. Okay. Turns out I have 11 minutes to land this puppy. We'll see. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good, his unfailing love endures forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Well, Adam Russell is actually fond of saying that this phrase, the Lord is good, his mercies endure forever, is the mantra of the Old Testament. Did you know that the Old Testament had a mantra? This phrase, word for word, is repeated more in the Old Testament than any other phrase. So if you've seen Bruce Almighty and you think the Old Testament is all about smite me thou mighty smiter, this is the mantra of the Old Testament. The Lord is good and his unfailing love, his mercy endures forever. We're looking at words that were sung and written and kept for us for over three millennia. And they're delivered to us now. Here's the testimony. The Lord's good and his mercy endures forever. And then this added on phrase, and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Now, it turns out that I woke up yesterday morning and I was a grandfather. I don't know how that happened. Because here I am, just a kid. Uh, I started high school in 1969. I turn around, I sneeze, and now I'm the grandfather of four and a half children. 
It's amazing. I am so pleased that his faithfulness continues to each generation. Can I, can I just tell you this as we conclude? God's been so good to me, to us. God has been so wonderful. We've had our shares of ups. We've had our shares of downs. We've had our struggles. We've had our disappointments. They pale compared to the goodness of God. And my deepest and greatest hope is that my children and my grandchildren, and please God that I live long enough that my great-grandchildren that will be on my lap, incontinent though it may be, that I, that I great, well, they'll be great-grandchildren, that, that I will see them and know that his faithfulness endures to every generation. This, too, is part of worship. This is how we reset the mechanism. This is how, this is how at the, the early in the morning on the first day of the week, as God's people are gathered, that we remind ourselves of God's love expressed for us in Jesus Christ, expressed for us in God's joyful way, demonstrated for us daily through the, the beauty of creation and the wonder of human relationships that are good and true and right. This is why we worship, not because he needs it, but because it is among our greatest needs. And this is why worship is so important here at the Vineyard Campbellsville and why it's a part of the Vineyard DNA wherever you go. There are lots of different Vineyard churches, but one thing you will always find is that praise and worship is front and center because praise and worship is God's Rx to us. It's God's prescription for our lives. There's an old guy that I used to know and he used to start every prayer like this. He'd say, God, I thank you that I woke up this morning sober and in my right mind. Well, I kind of like that. Now, I don't know his story. I mean, maybe he's actually talking about sobriety. Maybe he's got one of those chips from, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Or maybe that's your greatest need as well as my greatest need, to wake up every morning sober and in our right mind. And the way that we wake up sober and in our right mind is through worship, is through worship. We do not ignore what is difficult in our life. We do not claim that it doesn't exist or ignore it in any way. But we reset the mechanism always grounded in God's goodness and his mercy that extends, like it says in Exodus 33, to a thousand generations. Well, that's a little bit more than just my great-grandchildren. To a thousand generations. So let me invite you as the year goes on to really take this mantle of worship upon you. It's part of what Jesus offers. It, 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 the offer is given to us in the book of Isaiah. He will give us a spirit of joy for the garment of heaviness. We can actually change our clothes at church. There's a vivid image. We can change our clothes at church and shed a spirit of heaviness and instead put on an overcoat of joy. That's why we worship. And that's why we worship together. Okay? So he said, overly dramatic, is there a ministry team today? I know there is. Right? 
Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.